Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast, recorded live from the Ruby Barn here on Main Street in Suffield, Connecticut. This is your host, Sean Devine, and I'm barely known on Twitter. Today I'm joined by a, a, I think it's okay to call you an old friend at this point, right? I think so. Okay, that's good. Old friend, uh, Olga Raskina, and I don't mean that you're old. I mean that our our friendship is old. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> so I'm going to tell a, a short story about why I think it's the perfect week to have you on. Um, so the other day I got this uh, this email for, from someone that listens to the show named uh, Matthias. And here's what he said. Well, first he had, he had asked uh, if I could do a, a show in the future about uh, my favorite gems. So those are like open source libraries that I use in projects. So anyways, that's a good suggestion. We'll do that. But then uh, I, I emailed back and forth with him, and then he, he said the following. He said, also, if you have any great resource, I hope you could share it about how do you get to the next step after you've got control of the basics, I think. Um, uh, yeah, so so he was asking about, you know, he's new to Ruby, and he's new to Rails, and I think a little new to programming, and was asking uh, through this series of emails, you know, how do you how do you get good? <laughs> now, that would assume that I know, which I don't really know yet. Um, but I gave some advice back. And the three things that I said were, you know, first, try to master the basics of whatever you're doing. Second, create and finish a lot of things. Uh, and then three, read other people's codes so you see how people that are at different stages of development than you do things. And anyways, that got me uh, thinking about uh, a common topic on the show, which is how do how, how have we each learned how to program? And when I wrote Master the Basics to Matthias, I thought of you, because I don't really have a great command over the basics of programming, and uh, I think of all the people that I've known uh, that are either in in math or or programming or some combination, you've got one of the strongest sort of base foundations of anyone that I I know. So I thought it'd be awesome to talk about um, how that happened. <laughs> you know, how how was it that you went through your educational experience and came out the other side um, so strong in the basics? Plus, I think your personal story about where you learned and how you learned is interesting. So, all right, uh, are you game to talk about that? Absolutely. All right. So before we get into that, why don't you give the the thirty second intro since just about no one that's listening uh except for my wife knows who you are (laughs) (laughs) um all right so my name is Olga Raskina and um my background is um computer science applied math and uh, most recently operations research um I have undergraduate in computer science and I have PhD in operations research now, when you say most recently operations research, how recently are you talking? Well, yeah, most recently is last 12 years, so good point. <laughs> That's like me saying, like, most recently I'm an adult. <laughs> <laughs> what are you implying? <laughs> <laughs> and then, before, you know, less recently I was not an adult. So you have for for a long time been both um, somewhat of an expert in operations research and a professional programmer that's fair to say right well i wouldn't call myself a professional programmer because i didn't work as much in software development field um but i do have basics as you as you mentioned okay so let's level set for everyone how just how modest you're being so (laughs) 
we met at, uh, this is a fun story. So we met at a company called Emptorus, which is now part of IBM. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember the day that we met. Do you? Uh, barely, but yes, I do. Yeah, I remember the 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 um this conference room and it was a, a meeting about uh, you know operations research's role in the uh, Mtoris's software. And <clears throat> anyways, so Mtoris made software that helped uh companies uh what would you say like uh purchase better, negotiate with suppliers, uh run RFPs, etc. And it had a very great a, a pretty great optimization platform. And which part of that platform did you write? Well, I was at that time responsible for the optimization module of that software. So I was building the optimization around sourcing and procurement. Right. So so when you say that you're not a professional programmer, you were the primary architect and developer of like a a well-known uh a well-known piece of software that sold to IBM. Well, that is true. However, my, my my title, my official title, has never been a software developer, and that's never been my primary job function either. So, <laughs> all right, fine. So Just an, to level set. You're an amateur then. What, what's your favorite job title you've ever had? Um, it's a good question. I don't know if I have a favorite job title. I don't think I ever cared much about titles. Yeah, that's probably a good strategy. And. It doesn't really matter what you call it. What matters is what you do. All right. So uh, given that your education in computer science sort of uh, predates your uh, immigration to the U.S., let's talk a little bit about where you went to uh, college and even even before college to the extent that it, it uh, it's relevant. All right. So my undergrad was in Moscow. It was at Moscow State University. And it has... Um, well, if you translate it directly, it was called Computer Science and Applied Math Department. And I was more on the uh, computer science track of it, although everybody who goes to that department learns a lot about math and uh, applications of math as well. Are you suggesting that computer science and math are related? <laughs> this is, this is a, are you this, suggesting that they aren't? <laughs> I'm not, although on Twitter lately this has been a, a hot topic of debate whether it's uh whether programmers need to be strong or even reasonably strong in math or not and there are like very strong opinions on each side well i bet they are and i think it heavily depends on what you really do and if probably answering in part the question that you started with how do you progress from the basics i guess that's one of the ways that you progress from the basics is you get deeper into data and data analysis and that involves heavy math. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you went to Moscow State University and, and were going to major in computer science, it was unavoidable you were going to get good at math, right? Right. So the first two years, primarily everything you learn is math. Wow. Two years. So, well, so- we, we go to school. Well, the first step is five years, not four like it is here. So it's five years uh, degree, and first two years, primarily, I would say, 80% dedicated to math. And after that, you choose your track, and it becomes maybe 50-50 math and computer science. So let's, let, let's like, level set on the, the basics of, of the whole, um, like, schooling track in, in uh, Russia and then the Soviet Union. So it, how long does high school go for, or, like, what's the equivalent to high school there? 
uh, high school. So that would be last three years. Well, at least when I was when I was in school, I was last three years of school was what you call you would call equivalent of high school, probably. And are you complete? You're complete with that at at what age typically? <sighs> Around sixteen, seventeen. Okay. When you're done, we go. We well, at least when I was there, we we would go to school for seven uh, for ten years, starting at age like six and a half, seven. Okay, so it sounds like maybe the the ending of high school is a year earlier age wise than maybe it is in the U.S. And then yeah. university goes for five years. Five years. So you're out around the same age. So what about um, the application and admission process into university? Was it similar to the U.S.? No. Well, so these days, if you look at what happens today, it is pretty similar. But back then, 15 years ago, uh, or, well, 20 years ago, rather, <laughs> it was <laughs> pretty different. Sorry. Uh, appreciate it, Sean. Okay. <laughs> So, so, and it, it, it's been that way for many, many years. So it doesn't really matter because the change happened in the last five years. Um, so, but before um, you would choose a school, usually it's one school that you want to apply to and you take your exams in person there. So you would travel to that school and you will take some written exams that is, that school created specifically for itself. And then there are some oral exams where you just sit down with professors of, that uh, university of that department and they just ask you questions. Wow. Wow. So how, how long of a, and it sounds like a pretty big commitment for both sides, both the incoming student and the school. Well, it's a very big commitment for a student because if you don't get in, you have to wait another year because all the schools have those exams at the same time. So you kind of, you'll have to pick where you want to go and you have to be really committed. Wow. No, that's like, uh, wow, that's so different. So as you know, my uh, stepdaughter is going to college in a couple weeks to University of Wisconsin. And compared to her friend, she didn't even apply to that many schools, but she still applied to seven or eight. So like the idea of not having an option, I think she got into all but one of them. Um, just never, that would have never crossed her mind. But for you, like, was there a, what was the probability that you would have had to wait a year because you didn't get into Moscow State University? Well, so Moscow State University was and is a pretty selective school. So about, I would say at that time, one of three or four people would get in of those who applied to that department. Wow. So, but it's also since it's considered one of the top schools in Russia, it had its exams a little bit earlier so that anybody who wanted could try and apply. And then uh, if they failed, they still had a chance to go somewhere else. Okay. So of the so if you went into the room with, with three others to take the test, you passed, they failed, and then at least some of them could have applied to an alternative school after yeah, but that. Only, yes, but only one alternative school. <laughs> oh, wow. So. It's, <laughs> this is very different. It is very different, and it, it has been changed, and it's a lot more like it is here in the U.S. now. Is that good or bad, do you think? <sighs> I don't know. It's hard to tell because, you, know, I, I you know, I haven't really participated in that, and I don't know many people who have, so I only have more of like a hearsay, and there are very strong feelings either way. Some people think it's really good, especially on the application side student think it's really good 
to have standardized tests. Universities, especially the top tier and the ones that are selective, I think, they probably have mixed feelings because they have now, it's, it's, very, it's a lot harder for them to really judge and pick top students. Because they don't have as much direct interaction and they don't craft their own test. Is that the exactly, difference? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is the difference. And I think for the longest time, Moscow State University as the top school was excluded from that and they still had their own exams. But I think that's gone now. Hmm. So how much anxiety did you have about applying at the time? A ton. I was, uh, well, at least I was, I was lucky enough because I lived in Moscow. So for me, it was a short travel. But still, um, yeah, no, it was... Um, was pretty scary, but you know, when you're 16, you're pretty uh, brainless and headless, and you just you don't about <laughs> those things as much. Yes, I mean there are definitely some downsides to being an idiot teenager, but there are some upsides too. <laughs> yeah, you're not scared. And that's an upside. <laughs> so yes, I was I was anxious. I was studying a lot, but it didn't, you know, uh, it wasn't feeling like oh my god, it's going to be the end of the world if I don't get in. So questions like this one are always hard because you didn't go to high school in the in the U.S., so it's hard to imagine the difference. But let's talk about like where your math skills and science skills were at the end of high school. Do you have a like, like how far had you progressed, and do you have a sense for how that would compare to uh, sort of uh, well, take my stepdaughter. So she's she's uh, going to be a physics major, so she's sort of in the math science track, like. Where would you have gotten compared to where she probably got? Well, it's very hard for me to compare because I, I know very little about the level that you have when you graduate U.S. high school. So Beyond, I, I beyond mean, algebra? Beyond algebra. Well, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> algebra has a lot of levels too. But so, And I don't think it's going to be a fair comparison because I went to a math-oriented high school. So we studied probably a lot more math than a regular high school student would, even even in Russia, even in Moscow. So, um, so it, well, tell me more about that. So, how, how does that was? So when you were in high, when you entered high school, this was still, boy, this was like right at the edge of the Soviet. Yes, period. that was right. That yes, that was nineties. So, so at how early in your like how did it? How did it be? How did it become sort of your track that you went to a math-oriented high school? Was that figured out early because of testing, or did you select? How, how did that work? So it really is. I mean, nobody really tells you what to do. It's more like what you want to do, and if you want to apply to a school, because the system there, in terms of which school you go to, is very similar to what it is here. You're assigned to a school depending on where you live, right? So each address is assigned to a public school. Uh, and that's the school you go to. But uh, unlike here in the US, there, at least at the Soviet time, it was extremely hard, if possible, at all to move. So wherever your parents ended up living, that's where you go to school. And if you don't like that school, really the only option for you is to apply to one of those schools that are not address-based, but take anybody who passes their exams. Um, so, and that's what I did. Um, and at that time, well, and still probably, but Definitely at that time of all the subjects that I studied in school, math was my favorite, so it was kind of no-brainer to figure, well, there are a lot of good math-oriented schools in Moscow, so I just figured that would be the best for me. It never, well, I, I literally can't believe that it, it has never occurred to me that moving in like Soviet Russia 
was not a thing. Never, no. never occurred to me once. So how, how, how did one end up in the house they ended up in, in the first place? Uh, well, okay. Well, I was only a kid at that time, so I only know from, you know, what I've read and what I've heard, but, um, you get, you get your, well, especially living in the city like we were, um, you get your apartment from the government, right? So they build apartment buildings and people wait in line to, um, get an apartment in one of those buildings. So whatever is available at the time, they, they numbers up, that's where they end up. I mean, it's it's a lot more complex than that. It's it's really simplified, but uh, yeah. And if you want to move, so the thing you would do is you'll find another family who lives somewhere else who also wants to move to where you live, and you kind of exchange your apartments. Okay, so you can trade with someone. You can trade with someone, but yeah, it's if yeah. So huh. that 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 was the way, and that's how we ended up where where we ended up. Let's take a quick break to thank our first sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SEANSENTME. That's S-E-A-N, sent me. Squarespace constantly updates their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have beautiful templates for you to start with and tons of style options for you to adjust so you really can create your own space online. Everything is drag and drop, so it's easy to add content from your desktop and even rearrange elements of content within a page. Squarespace makes sure your site automatically looks great on any device because every Squarespace website has its own unique mobile design. You can easily connect Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google, and many more web and social services. Squarespace also has e-commerce on their platform, so if you want to set up shop and sell things, you can in just a few minutes. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you need some help, there are over 70 Squarespace employees that are on the customer care team. They're located in New York City and Dublin, available 24-7 for live chat and email support. As I said earlier, you can try Squarespace for free with no credit card required, and if you decide to purchase, plans start at just $8 a month, including a domain name if you sign up for a year. Make sure to get 10% off and support the show by uh, using the offer code SEANSENTME. So thank you to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and the Ruby on Rails podcast. Now, your, I, I, I don't remember the details, but um, your, your mother is a, is a professor, a, a math professor? Did I remember that right? Uh, chemistry. Chemistry. Chemistry professor, yep. Okay, so so at least the sort of the science education was a thing at your yeah, house. Yeah, that was that was that was in the family. Yeah. So she would have been super disappointed if you didn't get into Moscow State. Uh, I don't know. I I mean, I think she would be upset that I didn't get what I wanted, but I don't know if she would be disappointed that I didn't get into Moscow State. Gotcha. All right. So uh, so given that you went to a math high school, now I'm even more interested in how developed your math skills were at the end of high school. Um, like, do, do you recall what, uh, I don't even know if we can translate here. So like here that, you know, calculus would maybe have three levels ish. Okay. So you, so you would have taken multiple years of calculus, I assume. Well, we didn't, well, we didn't split them into like algebra and calculus and those things. Um, but <laughs> it sounds like a good, like, uh, in Soviet Russia joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Okay. I didn't, I didn't mean to start one of those. Um, <laughs> 
so well i mean it was more like you know general math and it might have like a geometry track and well everything else track but um it it i would think it was pretty advanced but it's really hard for me to compare to what it is here because i really don't know much about the level the level of math in high school here. so the, th the thing that i find interesting is that that before you programmed at all give or take I mean, and, and we'll get into the, your sort of computer science education, and I've got a feeling that programming is going to come a lot later even than the beginning of the computer science part of it. But, mm -hmm. I mean, you were, for, for here, what would be the equivalent of like three or four years into advanced math before you're even entering the, the computer science topics, right? Well... So I mean it's not it's not entirely accurate because we get introduced to programming in high school, right? So you would write something. You don't study like how you do it, or you don't study a lot of um, theory or approach or basics behind it. You just you know do little programs here and there that code something like a very simple game or something like that. Hmm. Um, what language? And then, what language uh, were you writing in? Do you remember? I think it was basic, but. <laughs> That was a long time ago. This is a this is a dumb question, but is uh, in high school in Russia in the early nineties would is basic in English or was there like a Russian translation? I know Russian translation existed, but what we used was the English, the common version. Okay. But I know Russian translation existed. I've seen it. So that's interesting. So, so in high school, you used programming kind of as a tool to hack through things, not as like a, not as a, a field of study that you were going to approach from, from like first principles. Right. So it, it wasn't formal. It wasn't like formally taught as like basic of writing algorithms or basic of a language or be, well, it probably wasn't a very primitive level. Uh, at least, you know, that was, that was a long time ago and I'm sure it's a lot different now. Um, but at that time, it was really new to everybody. We didn't even have computers in school, so we had to uh, go somewhere else where there was um, a room with a lot of computers that we could use. Nobody had computers at home, hmm. for example. And it wasn't even... That's interesting. So so even your math and science high school didn't have computers. It, you had to go elsewhere. Yes. At that time, yes. I think now probably all high schools have computers. But early 90s, there no. I mean, nobody had enough... Wow. resources to do anything like that well probably some some, some schools did but I, I don't think there were many so was it like a, the, the equivalent of like a library for computers that all the schools shared that they'd you know rotate in and out of I, it wasn't official I think uh, schools would enter like a private agreement maybe with um, I don't know maybe within within with a university that was nearby or with some company you know that was using computers for something else that would let students in for an hour a week or something like that. So it wasn't official and it wasn't the same for everybody. Whatever the school could figure out, they did. Hmm. It's just so amazing to me to hear about this because I, I uh, one of my gripes is that they don't um, teach programming or at least use programming in other classes in high schools enough. And it's amazing that back in there, you know, 20 some years ago now uh, in in Moscow, when you went to school and there weren't even computers at your house, let alone at the school, that you still were learning how to program. Yeah, that's uh, that. That's the way it was. And I didn't have a computer at home till I was, I think, third year in the university. 
Wow. Really? Yeah. So yeah. let's, let's fast forward to that. So you said that, that of the five year track in university, the first two were mainly math. And then let's go to year three where you're starting to get more into the computer science side of things. What was the curriculum like for that year? Ooh, okay. Um, so, well, one, one thing that is very different for any school in Moscow than, than it is here in the U.S., you don't really choose your classes. So you have a preset schedule or a preset set of classes that you have to take, and everybody takes the same set, same set of classes. At least, well, the first two years and after you choose your concentration track, it, it pretty much stays the same also. So you don't have much of a choice. You have a little bit of electives that you can take, but primarily you have a fixed schedule. Did uh, did you live in, uh, did, did students there live in dorms or at home? Uh, so those who, whose parents lived in Moscow, they lived at home. And those who traveled from other cities, they, they, they lived in a dorm. Gotcha. So the experience is quite different. So, I mean, you, you in your case, you lived, you know, you're from Moscow, so that was that. And then yeah. they give you your schedule that both says what classes you're taking and when you're taking them. Correct. <laughs> well, <laughs> makes things simpler. <laughs> Well, yeah, you don't really, you don't make a conscious decision of what classes you're taking. So you're not making really any choices until, well, probably the third year where you're required to pick one of one or two of the smaller classes there where you have a choice. Uh, and that's, that's where you finally start to think of what you like and what you want to do rather than just doing, you know, what you're expected without thinking much. Um, so, so what, what are the, like, what are the basic, like, intro to cs once your math skills are strong what, what what's the regimen of classes like well so we started with uh learning a programming language i think at that time it was uh, pascal mm -hmm. uh, we didn't get to like cc plus plus till much later um and then you study well we study like structure of software development like you know software development cycle uh, basics of operating systems, algorithms, a lot of, um, again, that would be that would be going back to math, right? Different types of algorithms, complexity of algorithms, those type of things. Um, so, and then, then you progress, you study another language and another language and more complex algorithmic structures, more complex program structures. And that's pretty much, and then you study a lot of, well, math that feeds into it, like algebra and uh, computational geometry and, well, a little bit of operations research, uh, a lot of computational calculus, computational differential equations, those kind of things. So at, at what point was it clear to you what your preference was? Or is it is it clear now what your preference is between <laughs> you know applied math like operations research or um, more the CS side, the programming side? <sighs> Well, I always liked the mix, and I always liked the application side. So some people choose a pure theory track, and that, that was never my thing. I mean, I understand that you have to know enough theory to understand what you're doing, but just studying the theory and proving new theory was was not really my ever my top choice. So knowing that I want to do something applied was very clear to me, even probably since high school. Well, that's interesting to me, because your theory skills are, are pretty strong, right? Well, yes, and yes, I, I wouldn't say no, but it's 
a lot because you can't you can't be really good at applications if you don't understand what you're doing and why you're doing what you're doing, and that requires knowing the underlying theory, right? So, I mean, you can you can figure out how to use an algorithm that is given to you, but the moment it doesn't work, if you don't know why it's created the way it is, you stand pretty much no chance to understand how to change it or how to build a completely new algorithm. Right. So the application side was your preference because you just... You didn't want to spend all of your time in theory, not because you either uh, had trouble with theory or or disliked it for I don't know more simple reasons. <laughs> no, no, I always I always wanted to kind of see more of well, you probably can call it more of instant gratification, right? Because you do something and it works, and you see it working, and you can see it making a difference, and that's that was that that was one of the biggest drivers for me. Boy, everything's relative. I like I love the idea that that you would say the words instant gratification when you went to, you got your PhD, uh, you know, you went to school for how long is that? Geez. So, you know, se- uh, seven years before you got out, you're, you're, yeah, it's you're more pretty five, five and four and a half. Yeah. It's almost 10 years, but <laughs> well, it's, well, it's all relative, right? And the skill of the universe. That's pretty instant <laughs> lifetime. It's pretty long, I think. <clears throat> it is long, but in the end, it was totally worth it. Yeah. So, um, so in terms of a major, so everyone, everyone in your track ends up with the same major. Did I hear that right? Where it's CS and applied math together? Well, so well, we don't have at least at that time we didn't have an equivalent of a major, right? So you go, you choose a department, and in my case, it was uh, applied math and computer science department, and you know. Another 300 students with you choose the same department that year. Um, so, and at that point, everybody for two years, everybody studies absolutely the same set of classes, which is a mix of math and computer science. And at the end of year two, you decide more of a track of what do you want to do. Like some people would pick, you know, theoretical algebra or computational algebra. Some people would pick more things like operating systems. Um, what I what I selected at that time was uh, more of um, artificial intelligence track, right? Mm. So you can see it as a domain of um, computer science, and I think what about fifty other people chose that track, and for this group of fifty people, a set of classes is also given and defined. And then at the end of five years, you does everyone graduate? Is there like a weeding out process that happens? Um, so you have two things that you do at the end. One is uh, you take like the a big kind of exit exam, which is oral, where you know you sit down with a professor and they can ask you anything about anything you learned in the last five years. Um, so <laughs> a little more anxiety for the end of. <laughs> yeah, so and then they give you a grade, but. Grade really doesn't matter as long as you didn't fail. Uh, you're good. Um, and then the second part is uh, thesis defense. So you spend probably like most of last year uh, writing. Well, actually, you start before the last year, but last year you spent a lot of time writing your, well, you probably equivalent of master's thesis here. And in the end, you defend that. And if you fail there, then you don't graduate either. But I think you probably get a second chance somewhere, somehow. It, it must be strange for you to, if you think about the people that you've worked with that 
that didn't go um, up the kind of track that you did that have more like, I don't know, taught them, they taught themselves how to program. They have, you know, weaker theory um, understandings, at least in, in part of what they do. What's it like, what are the, both the frustrations and I'm sure that there are some things that you, um, I don't know. When you when you watch how they work, you sort of wish, well, geez, that it seems nice that they taught themselves or went a different track. So, like, what's it like interacting with people that have such a different educational track than yourself? Well, actually, honestly, I have a lot of admiration for people who taught themselves because I think it's a lot harder to do. And I've seen a lot of people who were extremely successful in doing that. And I have it always it always amazed me, and I always admired them because. I don't know if I would have enough discipline to do that myself. Um, so, and I, I mean, I understand that sometimes it could be things that are obvious to me because I have a theoretical background might not be obvious to somebody else. But I think as as you work with people and as as you learn what what they're good at, you kind of work around that. And I think people who taught themselves probably have a lot more aptitude to pick up and continue learning hmm. I, I would th- that's that's totally my biased experience I used to have that experience with you all the time by the way so we used to work together a couple different times and uh, uh, where I would like notice something in the world you know in the world that we were working on like some I don't know some pattern I guess mm-hmm. and mention it and you'd be like oh that's the blah 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 pattern every time <laughs> Like a hundred percent of the time, whatever thing that I, you know, thinking I'm all clever, I just noticed you you had a name. Not only did you like know it, but you had a name for it. (laughs) And when that happened, I was like, oh, that's right. Because I'm a hack and, uh, she like knows the theory. So it's, it's funny because, you know, here you, uh, watch people that taught themselves how to do things and feel that way. And then, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the reverse side, it always feels just so magical to have <laughs> such a good theory basis that you like have learned, you know, not that you can just spot the patterns, but like, you know, who originally spotted it and what the name is and how to evaluate it and how to integrate it and what the consequences are, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, I, one side, yes, I agree. Although I don't know if knowing the name really does you much good on a daily basis, unless you want to Google something. Um, <laughs> well, it, it's a good party trick at the very least. <laughs> Well, if that's what if that's all you go and study theory for, it's probably not worth it. <laughs> but on the other hand, I mean, if if you've seen it before, you kind of maybe don't pay attention to it as much because to you it's nothing special. I mean, to me it would be maybe nothing special, but you discover something new every day, and that's so exciting. Yeah, that's true. That is an you advantage. Have your eyes of... Open for those kind of things. <laughs> no, I think that's true. So there's an advantage to not really knowing much. at least you learn a lot well i don't think i mean everybody probably discovers new things every day and i discover i learn new things every day too and i wouldn't ever want that to stop that's a perfect segue to introduce our second sponsor a new sponsor uh, named raygun so all software has bugs that's a fact but the way developers deal with software errors is changing to no longer be reactive but proactive Frustrated users who have experienced a problem with your app, now they just try to detail what happened over lengthy emails or phone calls. Suddenly you've wasted hours of precious and expensive development time trying to find the bug and apologize to your disgruntled users. And that's if they report your software's errors, of course. The majority of users that experience bugs simply walk away. 
Wouldn't you be happier doing what you love to do, shipping great code and great features rather than chasing bugs? If your software is crashing and becomes unusable for your customers, what does that cost you? It doesn't have to be that way. Raygun, built by developer tools company Mindscape, takes minutes to integrate, and you'll be notified of your software bugs as they happen, with automatic notifications and a full-stack trace to detect, diagnose, and fix errors in record time. With just a line or two of code, Raygun works with all major mobile and web programming languages in a matter of minutes. All errors are then automatically reported to the Raygun service, allowing your team to be alerted to problems with enough information about an error to resolve it right away. Raygun tracks millions of errors per hour and monitors software for thousands of developers every day. Raygun's Ruby on Rails provider, Raygun for Ruby, can be set up in seconds by adding the Raygun for Ruby gem to your application's gem file, or try out Raygun from the Heroku add-on store. Raygun has amazing features your development team will love. You can get started for free today at raygun.io slash 5x5 and receive a $50 account credit by using the discount code 5x5. So thanks to Raygun for supporting 5x5 and the Ruby on Rails podcast. So uh, so you get to the end of university, and do you immediately go to get your PhD? Or how did you, or, or was there another step in between? Uh, I worked for a few months in between, but yeah, I applied to grad school before I graduated. So I only had, well, actually I worked my last year in, in college and in university there. Uh, but I graduated in June and in August of that same year, I was already in New York. Wow. That was a short break. So you knew for sure that you wanted to to continue your education. Yes. That, was, that, that was... was that because it was a um, kind of a, a family thing that would be typical of of it just seemed like the normal thing to do, or did it, did it have to do with uh, you know your interest in understanding things better, or both? Well, it well I definitely wanted to uh, learn. Well, I actually, well, when, when I learned about operations research and it sounded very exciting to me, although I didn't spend much time learning it back in, uh, in my first degree, but also opportunity to go to U.S. and go to American grad school, that was a huge factor, too. So was, you, went to, you went to Columbia for grad school, right? Yes, yes, I did. So what's that, what was that like? How do you, so if you were, if you went to university in Moscow back when you did and you wanted to apply to Columbia is that is there anything notable about that process or is it pretty much the same as if if I had applied to Columbia that same year um well it's probably well it's somewhat different because a lot of things were totally not clear and not obvious on how you do it right because to you the education system here is clear and obvious and understood and to me there, especially with, you know, back then without really much of internet or anything else, it was pretty challenging just to understand the process. And fortunately, there was an American education center in Moscow, which would give any kind of advice. They would have test preps and everything like that. So you would learn it there. But otherwise, I think it's probably very similar. How was, uh, how was your English at the time? Um, basic. <laughs> well, so that's one of one one thing different that you would have. I would I had to take an English test, which you didn't if you would apply. Well, I would have passed that one, but I would have failed the the math spectacularly. <laughs> okay. I don't know about that. Maybe not. 
Yeah. So, so you, you come over and, and do you know the whole time you're going to go to get your PhD or is there, is that an option amongst multiple? Uh, in Columbia? Yeah. Or, well, no, I applied to a PhD program. So when I came, I came for a PhD program. Gotcha. And you said that was five years that you stay in or four years? Four and a half. Well, so I, I defended in, uh, so I came in the summer of 98 and I got out fall of 2002, November 2002, probably somewhere in that somewhere <laughs> a long so, time ago. So you're at this point, a good Java programmer. At what point in this educational track did you, did you learn how to program in Java? Ah, funny thing is, I didn't. Uh, the first time I saw Java is when I came to Imperis. Come on. <laughs> no kidding. Is that true? Wow. That is that is totally true. I never studied Java because in Columbia I wasn't in the computer science department, so we didn't really had any requirement to take any programming class. And I knew uh, I knew C C plus plus, and that's what I used for anything where I need I needed any kind of programming. But when I came to Imtoris, obviously Imtoris's product was all in Java, so I had to um, I had to convert from from C. <laughs> so this is uh, this was the best possible thing you could have said for anyone listening right now, because th they want you to have this struggle that they've had picking up <laughs> a new programming language. <laughs> so what was that like? You know, now you're here. You go to school for uh, ten years, and you've got a. Uh, PhD from one of the best universities in the world and a CS degree from a, uh, uh, a great school in Moscow and you yeah. show up to your job and you don't know how to write the thing that they write. What was well, that Well, like? that, was, that wasn't the only thing I didn't know. Right? I mean, you come out of school, you're pretty green in terms of how business operates and in terms of what it's like to really be there in the real world, especially for me, because coming from a different country, I didn't know what companies are like in the US at all. I mean, I had a couple of internships, but that was nothing like it. So it wasn't the only thing I didn't know. Well, oh, man. So so like, it's a culture shock. And you don't know the, the you don't know the programming language. Oh. And on top of that, the person that uh, I replaced already left leaving behind some documentation, but not much. <laughs> Are you, are you, was it tested at least? Did you have like a... Oh, you... no, it was, it was working fine. It was, it was, the, the product itself was working. There was a lot of code that was working and people were using it. It just, I didn't know. Oh, I'm, I, I, what I meant by the test question is like, could you at least look at a set of tests and say, oh, okay, this is what the thing is supposed to do at the very, like, I know that there's like a, a, a set of outcomes that these methods should result in and at least well, I can... You know, go there, was no, there wasn't such a thing as like unit tests. So because the code itself was so complex and uh, as it is often with optimization problems, if you solve it twice in a row, you don't get exactly the same outcome, which is which is okay and understood and expected, but it makes it really hard to create unit tests. So there was some documentation about how, overall what it was supposed to be doing and how it was engineered and how it was designed. And there were a lot of people who knew what in the end it's supposed to produce. But still, yeah, it was um, it was a lot to learn, and I probably learned more my first year in Imptoris than, well, I learned a lot of different things that I had no idea about coming <laughs> out of Which was harder, getting used to the um, the culture shock of it all or, or the technical side? Culture was by far the winner. It really? still is, by the way. 
<laughs> you're still getting used to it. <laughs> well, there are still things that are obvious to many people that are completely not obvious to me, and that you sometimes learn the hard way. Yeah, I, well, I hear you. <laughs> me too. <laughs> oh wow, that's scary. Okay. <laughs> oh boy. So uh, um, let's talk about learning Java then. So you know, again, one of the reasons I think it's it's fun to have you on is that many people that listen are are either learning Ruby on Rails or they know Ruby on Rails well, but they're looking to p pick up another language like Go or or Objective C or Swift or you know Erlang or whatever. And uh, you know, so how did you how did you approach or how do you approach still picking up a brand new language? Well, first thing I'll comment on is from the languages that you just named, the only familiar word was C. So I don't know anything else. I don't even know what they are. So as maybe, ironic as it is maybe for I just, me being in this program. Well, maybe I just uh, made up a bunch of words. Oh, well, I wouldn't know, even if you did. There are flavors of ice cream from the local shop. <clears throat> oh, well, okay. Uh, at least you entertain the listeners. Um, <laughs> anyway, so... How did I learn Java? Well, I, I had a well, I, I had a structured background because I knew C and on a conceptual level, it's not really that different. So you use yes, you use different type of operators, but if you're familiar with object oriented concepts and you used it before, it's not that hugely different unless you go into things like special packages and special libraries and all of those which in my line of work I usually don't mm -hmm. so but if you use like a core basic language if it's in the same kind of probably you can say like concept or platform of object ori orientation all you really need to learn is what are the bigger differences syntaxes like common operators those kind of things and as you go through somebody else's code and you try to understand what it's doing and try to replicate what they did you pick that up so it's probably I'd, much trickier to pick up the, I don't know, the the code you inherited then, just what what the heck it was doing then picking up the language was then. Yes, I would say I would say that is true. But if I were to pick up a language with a different structure, and maybe like I don't know, I, I think it would probably be pretty hard for me, or maybe not not much easier for me than for anybody else to learn something like Ruby, or you know whatever else from that laundry list of words that you. <laughs> well, there were a lot of different types of languages in there, but like something like Go is like a modern C, and that that'd be straightforward for you. Something like Ruby is object oriented, but a scripting language. Um, so that that's that kind of different. Like have you pro you've programmed in JavaScript before, right? JavaScript? No, actually, I didn't. Really? Yeah. Well, no. I don't think you'd have a lot of trouble. Probably not. So we should uh, we should take a break and read the sponsor. Uh, the sponsor details. This will be a fun one. So this week we're sponsored again by CodeShip. And uh, for people that don't know, CodeShip is a free continuous delivery service that's really simple to use. Um, do you have any idea what continuous delivery is? No. So here's the idea. Uh, it, it, some people call it continuous integration. CodeShip uh, does a little bit more than that. So they call it continuous delivery. So the idea is that every time you make a change to the code of your application and push it up to whatever, um, like source code repository you use, like GitHub or, or Bitbucket, then 
code ship notices it, 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 it gets a hook from GitHub and it builds your application, runs your entire test suite, can do some other things like uh, look for test coverage or look for uh, static analysis, code quality kind of metrics or whatever. So anyways, it runs the test suite. It gets some other stuff if you ask it to. And then based on how that all goes, and in fact, it could do that across multiple versions. So like, let's say you needed your app to run on, like think back to mTaurus, if you needed the app to run on like different versions of operating systems and with different databases and, you know, different configurations. It builds the app across every one of those configurations and then runs, you know, does the test runner within that build of the app. And then, you know, depending on how it goes, it makes decisions uh, or it follows your instructions rather about what to do next. Do you, you know, notify you of a problem or do you deploy that code to production or do you, you know, run some other process? So that's what continuous delivery is sort of managing that whole app building, testing, workflow, deploy process. Um, and if you can believe it, they offer uh, all that for free for your first hundred builds per month. For, for private projects. Now, if you want more because you've got a larger team and you're uh, deploying the app much more than that, then you can sign up for their paid plans and uh, uh, do more than 100 builds a month. So does that make sense, what continuous delivery is? Uh, well, on a high level, yes. But like I said at the very beginning, since I'm not really much of a software developer in a pure sense of the world, I don't know much about deployment and those kind of things. So I never have to deal with those. I never had to deal with those. It's a nice thing. <laughs> to not have to oh, I believe. It. And I, it does sound like it's exciting. But again, for me not being really uh, much in the really IT world, it's hard for me to even judge if I understood exactly what you were saying. <laughs> well, I think that actually continuous delivery is very much for for people that would have an opinion like you just said. They... They don't see themselves as operations people. They want to be able to automatically test uh, uh, their code in, in a production-like environment and then you know, do things based on what the outcome of that is without like, worrying about how the heck to make that happen in, in, uh, in a way that they can trust. So CodeShip is just a turnkey way to do that. Um, on the deployment side, and this is back to, my, back to the script, uh, you can deploy to cloud services like Heroku or Amazon Web Services or Nojitsu or your own servers, um, uh, whichever you have as your deployment environment uh, is fine with CodeShip. You can start off with their free plan. It takes about three minutes to set up. You can find out more at codeship.io slash 5x5ruby. Use the offer code 5x5ruby to get 20% off any plan for three months. They also have a blog at blog.codeship.io. You can go there to get updates. So thanks again uh, to CodeShip for sponsoring. All right. There we go. So uh, so one thing that's interesting about your life, I think, Olga, is that m many programmers I know sort of fantasize about having family members that know what they do all day so that they could talk about it. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. I see where you're going. Okay. Uh, like, I, I think this is a very common thing, right? Because you've spent all day or all week uh, wrestling with whatever problems you're working on. And, you know, that's your whole world, <laughs> to some degree, at least. And you want to be able to talk about it, it yet, you know, very, it's, it's not that common that uh, you could go home and, and talk about uh, your programming challenges. Uh, but y your situation is a little bit different than that. 
And uh, I'd like you to either uh, prove to us that we're all right, that it's true, that it'd be nice to go home and talk about our problems, or is that a crazy idea and it, it's it's actually a, a, a challenge? Okay, well, it's 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 both, right? I agree it's really good to have someone that you can really bounce off ideas and talk about challenges and everything else. Um, on the other hand, you don't always want to do that at home. <laughs> now, is it competitive? So your husband is in a is in a pretty similar, like like his skill set is pretty similar to yours, right? Well, he is a lot more in software development and all the relevant areas than than I am, but he has a very similar background. Yes. So. So do you compete with him at all? No, I mean we don't work on the same things, so there is there is no competition. <laughs> If there was, if there was a, a desire to, and you don't have the opportunity. Well, I don't know why you, I mean, you compete so much with people at work. I don't know why you would ever want to do that at home. Oh, well, people do all sorts of stupid stuff at home. Oh, well, I believe that, but it doesn't <laughs> seem reasonable to me. All right. So, so what you're saying is that, that having a spouse that is basically in the exact same field is, is neither great nor terrible. Well... It gives you it gives you an option if you want to discuss something at home, whether you want to choose that option and use it or not. I mean, you have a choice. Now, who would be more likely to bounce an idea off the other, you or your husband? I think it's probably the same, roughly. Huh? Well, it sounds like you guys have a lot figured out as it relates to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been doing this for many years, so yes. <laughs> Did you guys meet in I don't remember in Moscow or in Colombia? Yes, we no we uh, we went to uh, we were same year in the university, so that's where we met. Wow! And did he go to Colombia too? Yes, yes, he did. Well, it seems like it was there. That, speaking of anxiety, was there concern that one of you would get in and one of you wouldn't? Uh well, no. Well, yes and no because he came to Colombia a year later, so. Ah, because, because he had, I don't know, just because that's how it worked out for him or he did a different track or something. No, he just the way it worked. All right. So let's fast forward to now. So, um, we've talked all about learning the whole time and, Mm -hmm. uh, you claimed early that, that being self-taught makes it easier for someone to pick something up and then later revealed you picked up Java after going to school. (laughs) So so apparently you're in both categories as far as I can tell. Well, you never stop learning, right? The the moment you stop learning, you better stop what you're doing altogether. Yeah. So what would, what would be the next thing for you? (sighs) Next thing. Next thing to learn. Next thing to learn. I don't know. I never like, I never plan it the way that this is the thing I'm going to learn and then just go ahead and learn it. It just, it comes with a flow, you know, you're doing something like you have a project or you're working on something and you see that you're missing a domain or you don't know something that, that is really either really needed or would be really cool to know as part of what you're doing. And then as, as you progress through, through your project, you, you just, you use whatever new area you need and you get better at it. You probably read a lot about it. 
you start applying, you start asking a lot of questions, and that's that's usually how it goes. Now, do you have the thing? Do you have that thing right now? The thing that's new to you that came up in a project that you're into, or not so much? And not at this very moment, but I've learned quite a few things throughout the last few years, definitely. Mm-hmm. So, uh, last topic, which is. Um, it was sort of trite, so I'm going to warn everyone that, that I, I am aware that this is a trite topic, but I'm interested, so I don't care. Okay. Um, the gender split back in Moscow and then how that changed as you came to the U.S., both for school and then for work. I've got this, like, I've got this idea in my head that like early 90s, um, uh, during the transition from Soviet Russia to uh, post-Soviet Russia, that like uh, uh, at Moscow State, Un- State University would be an equal split of men and women. Am I um, ma- is that right? So it really depends on which department you look at, right? Because every department, then there were a few dozen of departments in there. Every department would be different. So those that were more technical, like physics, pure math, applied math, those those would have more men. Um, others who might have equal split or even more women. So take like yours, uh, computer science and applied math, give or take, what was it? Do you remember? Uh, two to one, I would say. Oh, wow. So it was still quite, quite biased. Well, I don't know if it was biased. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it was biased during the, um, admission process it's probably more just who applies i mean if you look at the applicants it would probably be a similar split Hmm. and again i'm guessing but i I would think that's that would be pretty close Hmm. so i was that's i don't know why i was imagining that that uh, there would have been a difference in that in in that era in in russia that it would have been more 50 50 in applied math and computer science Hmm. some some big theory in my head is now out the window (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen 50-50 in anything that is math and computer science related. Not in classes there, not probably even in classes here. Did uh, did the split change when you went to Columbia? Did the split change? I No, I actually, I, I don't think it did. Hmm. Again, I didn't go to, I, I don't know what the undergrad classes would have been like here so i only i'm only looking at very very small phd program that i was in in columbia and there were just a few students so it's really uh it's almost impossible to extrapolate on what it would have been right because there are many people in the phd program at columbia right well in that department at least at that time there were very few people it was a very small department it's much bigger now Hmm. but back 10 years ago was in the very big department have you had, and then what about the split as in your professional career? Has it, has it been similar or different? I've, I'm actually, you know, now that I think about it, I think it's similar. <laughs> From, uh, well, that's actually pretty good because I think that the overall stats, it, the, the gap widens quite a bit professionally on average. Like, so I think that the numbers go that the, in, education that it's closer to 50 50 it's not 50 50 but like 60 40 or 65 35 wouldn't be uncommon but then 
yeah, as you get into professional programming, especially a few years in that the percentages drop to the, like, I don't know, it's like one out of five now, I think are women. Mm, why do you think that happens? Well, I, you're probably in a better position than I am to guess at that. Um, why do you think? <laughs> like, well, I, don't think I'm, I don't think I'm allowed. Like I probably have guesses, but, uh, well, I mean, that's your observation, right? So, I mean, what's what's your guess? Well, actually, I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of women in the uh, IT world. Like as as I worked in Emptoris, as I work uh, in my current company, and as I go to conferences and I see people, I see actually a lot of uh, women who are professionals in computer science or operations research or related field like data science. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't look to me like women are dropping off. It seems so from what I know that's more common with big companies than it is in open source and smaller companies. Mm. So like the the proportion of the um technology staff that'd be women in, you know, call it the the largest 2000 companies in the country would be way higher like an order of magnitude or something higher than at the small companies in an open source, which is weird. Well, I'm sure you can create a lot of theories around why that happens. And I think to a lot of people, regardless of gender, just going to a small, very fast-paced startup is just not, not their thing. There's, a, there's usually quite a bit of talk about how the, the development community is hostile towards well, people in general, I think, and women in particular. Is that was that your experience as you entered the sort of professional programming world here, or not so much? Well, again, I was not, I, and maybe that's that it helped me and it played in favor for me that I wasn't really a professional software developer and I never positioned myself as one, so I wasn't seen as competition, and I I never really had much of experience with people being hostile towards me and maybe that's because I wasn't they didn't perceive me as competition um, but I I think I know what you're talking about in the sense uh, in general as you go to like discussion boards and you go to conferences you can see that happen uh, at times that uh, people who who are more advanced and more professional um, they they're not as much interested in newbies well maybe you figured out the solution though to, to, for people to avoid the hostility is just, you know, be a, a, a world-class expert in applied math first <laughs> and then learn how to program secondarily and then introduce yourself as the operations research person and then <laughs> you won't get flack. Well, I've always seen development not as a thing in itself, but as a tool to towards other means, right? I mean, all, all in the end, all I care about is, you know, as I build operation research and mathematical algorithms, I want them to work and I want to see them work. So I have to implement them myself, right? I have to write the code for them to work. And that's kind of just like the same way you would use Excel to understand data, but you wouldn't consider yourself as like Excel developer or Excel guru. Uh, so that's probably, that might be a fundamental difference between the way I see myself, I position myself, and I use um, software development and programming to compare it to people who are really professional in those areas. So I actually had the exact same experience. I think you said it well, where I don't 
really consider myself and haven't a professional programmer, but I learned to program well after I met you years and years after I met you. Um, just to, because I need like, kind of like you just said, I, I needed to be able to program in order to implement ideas. And I like, there just wasn't another option. Um, I mean, if you had a big team, there was another option, but I didn't have a big team at the time. So I had to, I just had to figure it out. And I, uh, part of the reason to talk about this for me is that I have never experienced too well, all that much hostility in the programming community either, but I know that it exists because I see evidence of it from other people and it's clearly talked about in ways that are, you know, are authentic and maybe you're right. Maybe it's, uh, um, maybe it's experienced more by those that are, are trying a direct, you know, a a direct Mm -hmm. entrance into the, uh, the field. I don't know. Oh, that might be, or I don't know. It's just, you know, I would never probably write the code just for the sake of writing code. If no. I don't, if I, if, if I would never, I don't think I would ever enjoy implementing somebody else's algorithm just for the sake of the fun of writing the code. I know a lot of people do have fun writing the code and those are the people who are really good at it. And it's, it's never been the case to me. All I, all I really care about is get the job done and move on. Well, plus their algorithm would be slow and buggy. My algorithm? No, theirs. <laughs> and who wants to, who wants to implement their slow buggy algorithm? <laughs> well, I, you know, there are people who are really good at building algorithms. So, <laughs> I, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I won't argue with that. But yeah. all right. Well, I think we should wrap up. This has been fantastic. I. It's funny we've known each other for how many how many years now? Do you think? Ten. Uh, Ten at least. Yeah. So 10 and I had, uh, I think of all the questions I asked you, I knew the answer to like 10% of them. <laughs> well, I think it's even more amazing that uh, I'm on a um, program for Ruby on Rails and I really know nothing about it. Well, that's sort of my shtick, I think. You know, so yeah. if, when, uh, I, when I ask guests to come on, I'd say one out of four is from outside the community and maybe one out of five. But the reason's sort of simple in that. Otherwise, it's just an echo chamber. You spend all day talking to people that are like you about things that you already talk about in your head all day. And it seems much more interesting to talk to new people about new things, at least sometimes. Well, no, it does, and I hope I contributed something to the community. All right. Any uh, anything to promote? Mm, promote. Yeah, and this is the this is the part of show, the show where we sign off, and you know you can. I don't know, tell people what they should, uh, I mean, usually people promote their own stuff, either their products or their Twitter account or their pet thing. Uh, so I don't know what yours is, but you can promote it right now if you want to. Well, I don't really have much because I'm not a member of open source community, but as a general comment, uh, if anybody asks what's next after you just been a software developer, I think, uh, the next step is data science. Oh, really? How, where would people go to, like, like, let's say that struck a chord with someone right now. Uh, what, what do you think is the right place to go to learn more about being a data scientist? Well, there are a lot of data scientist communities. Um, there are a lot of communities on LinkedIn. There are, uh, there are communities outside of uh, open source. Um, it's, it's becoming very popular and informs as a professional organization of operations research, the one that I belong to. Uh, also has a very uh, nice and big community for data scientists. So there are there 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 are professional organizations that just help 
help you get started and find resources. So one thing that's pretty popular in the Ruby community is going to like local meetups of one sort or another. You know, it could be like a monthly lunch where people uh, go and meet with other Rubyists, or it could be a breakfast or a, who knows, you know, whatever. Um, are there... Are, is is that a common thing in the data science community? And would that be like a an easy avenue for a Rubyist to use to to learn more? It probably is. Um, I don't really know much about it, but I, I would I would guess I would guess it is. Although unlike Ruby, I think data well data science is a very very hot field, but it's also a rising field. So I think right now it probably has more demand than it has supply in terms of people and there are a lot of people who are just entering the field as well so it they might not have formed as well as other areas does informs host things like that i'm pretty sure they do but i i wouldn't be like 100 percent certain are you still pretty involved in informs I am actually not as much as I used to be, but I'm still a member and I still go to their meetings. I've been to, I went with you to yes, a couple yes, of Informs events, which were a super while ago. fun. I enjoyed well, it though. Well, I'm sure there are some in Connecticut now as well. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's certainly Southern Connecticut. All right. So that was a good thing to end with. So people, if they want to maybe broaden their horizons beyond programming, check out data science and I'll plug in forms. I think Informs is a good place to start. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, if someone wants to connect with me on uh, Twitter, I'm barely known. <laughs>